Men sometimes speak as if the study of the classics would at length make way for more modern and practical studies. But the adventurous student will always study classics in whatever language they may be written and however ancient they may be. For what are the classics but the noblest recorded thoughts of man? They are the only oracles which are not decayed, and there are answers to the most modern inquiry in them as Delphi and Dona never gave. You might as well admit to study nature because she is old. To read well, that is, to read true books in a true spirit, is a noble exercise, and one that will task the reader more than any exercise which the customs of the day esteem. Welcome to this episode of Redeeming Reads, a podcast interpreting classic novels in light of the gospel. I'm Dylan. And I'm Taylor. Right off the bat, I am slowly recovering my voice from a recent illness. Um, so for that reason, I'm probably going to have a scratchy voice this entire recording. <laughs> we'll forgive you. It's okay. I feel like um, I feel like my voice goes between... I have like Christian Bale mm. level. Yeah. Like the gravelly Batman voice. And then also on the other side is sometimes like Marcel the Shell comes out. <laughs> I think our listeners have been waiting for both of those characters to appear on this podcast. So <laughs> that feels appropriate. <laughs> so, uh. Uh, yeah, so bear with me. Yeah, well, today we are going to be discussing Walden, a book by Henry David Thoreau. Um, it's a classic piece. It's not fiction per se. Well, no, it's not fiction at all. It's really a collection of essays um, by this transcendentalist kind of philosopher, author, um, who's a man who basically devoted himself to living an alternative lifestyle. Uh, he built a cabin in the woods and lived there for a couple of years. And also, uh, it was in Massachusetts, which is pretty close to where we are um, regionally, which is really cool. It's awesome. It feels so New England. He lived in Concord, Massachusetts, and I think that's where Walden Pond is, right? Is it in the same town as Concord? Yeah, it's in Concord, okay. Mass. Yep. And he was an educated guy, right? So he went to Harvard, um, and he um, primarily writes about, I'd say, I don't know, I would describe it, I guess, as like living an alternative lifestyle, um, maybe today what we would refer to as like minimalism, like this kind of a wave of like productivity slash minimalism, those like gurus <laughs> that have kind of taken over, um, <clears throat> you know, the self-help sections and, and even YouTube by storm in recent years. Um, he was kind of the OG. Yeah. Um, but he also was really, and, and his big thing historically is like that he was a transcendentalist um, and he had he was really like in tune with nature clearly like he was just living off the land in the woods for a couple of years in this cabin um how would you describe transcendentalism taylor yeah transcendentalism um was a philosophical movement i think primarily in the united states or at least that started in the u.s and it emphasized a few things uh goodness of people is one of them uh had sort of an inherent suspicion towards systems so uh, Thoreau comes across sort of like a libertarian almost in modern day terms. Uh, and so you might say, is it fair to say the goodness of the individual as opposed to the community or definitely, you know, the, the built up system of people? Yeah. There's this sort of, sort of inherent focus on self and 
the like awakening of the soul in the individual. Um, and that's really where a lot of the spiritual parts in Walden that we'll talk about come from is that like inherent, he thinks there's some, some like nobility and goodness in man that, um, he's sort of searching for in himself, but it's extremely spiritual. It's not just materialistic, like you might expect in this time period, um, to be writing in the mid 1800s when, you know, we're sort of on the cusp of scientific, um, revolution and learning, but it's not just materialistic. He thinks that there's some inherent spiritual value and that comes indirectly from, you know, American Christianity at the time and really an emergence out of Unitarianism that has moved a little bit towards like a pantheistic point of view and hence this value of nature that God is sort of in all and, um, you know, around us all. Hmm. And for the record, just for our listeners, what how would you describe Unitarianism? What is that? Uh, so it's non-Trinitarian, first of all, uh, which is the f- mm. kind of the major deviation from um, the the major, uh, you know, Christian denominations of the time. Um, and also, over time, what Unitarian has come to mean is, uh, you know, very much pluralism. Um, you know, an appreciation for all things and all spiritual movements is a hallmark of Unitarianism and is still pretty prominent in this part of the United States and New England, I think, in particular. Um, yeah, it's kind of an American thing. Definitely. Yeah, it's it? very Boston, actually. Um, it hmm. feels like that's a, a unique <laughs> um, kind of religious movement to our region here in, in yeah. New England. And so what, he was writing in, was it like the 1850s? Yeah, it was like mid-1800s. He, I think he died in the 1860s, so it was probably a little earlier than that. But um, yeah. he, he was born in 1817, I think, so um, mm. sort of right, right in the middle there. Mm-hmm. So he writes all that, a, a large spectrum of, of things in this book. It's really, a, yeah, a collection of various essays that make up each chapter. Um, so really, really interesting. Some of them are just about um, simple things. There's a chapter or an essay called Sounds. <laughs> it's basically about the different sounds that yeah. you hear in, in the woods and nature. His experience hearing birds and, and stuff like that. There's also one called um, Visitors, which is just about <laughs> in general, like the hospitality that he would... Um, you know, the folks he'd have over at his place and what they would think of his place. Um, he talks about how he would farm and he was a bean farmer. That was like the primary way that he was able to, um, I guess, you know, survive. And I think he sold some too. He, the whole first chapter is actually about economy and basically like how we use money. And I thought it was really, um, really interesting, especially, but, um, yeah. What are some other themes that he writes about in this book that you appreciated? Yeah, I, you know, you mentioned minimalism, living simply um, is a big deal. Um, and also just natural history is is something he, like the environmentalist movement sort of grows out of people like Thoreau in, in the United States, people like Thoreau and John Muir and um, a collection of others who um, just go out into the wilderness and observe it and write down what they observe. And there's sort of a simple beauty in that that um that comes up and as you described 
just chapter titles that are just things he is looking at or experiencing. Um, but then he sort of elevates it to another level. It's not just that, oh, I'm farming beans. He has to find some philosophical tie-in, um, which, you know, might be stretching sometimes because sometimes I think farming beans is probably just farming beans. But for him, he always seemed to find something uh, that was valuable to um, his life and ethic and, and everything he did with his hands and um, in growing and facing challenges. Yeah. He also valued the idea of solitude and spending time alone, which is interesting. And maybe we'll talk more about that, but I think that's something that's very counter uh, our culture today, or it's just very counterintuitive, I think, to what um, our culture would say, you know, allows people to accomplish things or bring true happiness. Yeah, I think particularly in a world that is so technologically advanced. Um, he was writing in a world that was not nearly as technologically advanced, but you could see that he even then had sort of an aversion to, I don't know, uh, to modern systems. And maybe that's part of sort of this suspicion towards uh, societal... Yeah, like novelty. Yeah, exactly, to, to new things. He sort of had a view that... Um, I don't know, ways of the past might have been better. I don't know if that's completely true, but there's in the simplicity of the the old ways of the past that there was value in that and that, you know, it was more valuable to him in his personal development to, you know, cut the boards and do all the things he needed to do to build his own house, his own cabin in the woods, which he then lived in for two years, than to just purchase the materials to build the house. Um, and he thought that there was something inherently valuable about that and the kind of the, the solitude of living there than there was in living in society, which certainly is countercultural in the especially connected age that we're, we're in. That certainly is, is unusual. We haven't even talked about coffee yet. I know. I was wondering when, <laughs> when we're going to do that. I thought we might wait till the end, but we can also jump in right now. That's fine. I usually like to try to put it in the first five minutes or so, but it's 10 minutes now. Well, it's not too late. Dylan, what are you drinking tonight? So tonight I'm drinking coffee from, um, what is it? George Howell. George Howell Coffee Roasters in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, I've never heard of them. It sounds like just a man who makes who makes coffee. Yeah. yeah, this is made by George himself. Oh, um, cool. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, no, it's a bigger like company. Um, okay. They so they this is a house blend that they created for a local cafe called Seven Stars. So it's their Seven uh, Seven Stars Bakery House Coffee. And this is a darker roast than I usually go for. It's I don't even actually, you know, it might be more of a medium dark, but th- just as far as the color of the beans, it's definitely darker than what I typically go for. But it's really good. It's a lot more balanced than a lot of what I drink, really. Um, it holds half and half really well, like better than you know some light roasts. And I prefer it, I think, with half and half than black. The notes that it gives, it says dark chocolate, dried cherry, and honey. Um, I think it's actually pretty accurate. Um, there's something about the taste that it really it has a like dark chocolate taste. You know how dark chocolate just tastes different than milk chocolate, maybe less sweet, 
but still yeah. has that like cocoa-ish flavor. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, a little bit of bitterness that. would make sense too with the yeah. dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's actually nice about it is that it's like barely bitter. It's just like the tip of bitter. Like it's not, it doesn't go, there's nothing like uh, off-putting about the bitterness. Yeah, that's good. It's almost Not like semi-sweet done. chocolate, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Yeah. What do you have? Good stuff. I'm drinking a Indian coffee tonight. I don't think I've ever... I think this is the first coffee I've ever had from India. I've and never even I'm, heard of that. Really? Yeah, nor have huh. I. And maybe that's for good reason. I don't know. This one's not too bad. Um, similar to you, you know, it's it's darker than I typically would uh, prefer coffee so it's it's a definitely a medium at least um but it's it's not bad it feels uh you know maybe a little hazelnutty um maybe some slight like grassy feel to it um mm. but not necessarily in a bad way i think like you this would be good i'm not drinking it with uh cream or half and half but i think it probably would be good with it um it doesn't have a lot of acidity or brightness um so that would probably do well with um with some mm. milk but mm-hmm. maybe more exciting than the coffee is is the mug I'm drinking out of. Um, mm. We were talking about just before we started recording the pros and cons of the mug you drink from. What what mug are you drinking from? First of all, um, this mug is actually a. I think it's called milk glass. Is the type of material that it is. Um, okay. I think it's an old. I think it's from like the '70s or something. Actually, like an antique. Now I think you could consider it to be. Um, so my shout out my mom has been she has um a she has like a side hustle doesn't yes that's correct side hustle a booth that she sells like antiques and stuff out of um and this is one of the i think antique mugs that she um was that she found or was reselling and i really liked it um and then she just gave it to me and I tried to That's pay so- her, and she wouldn't take it. She wouldn't take the money. See, but now when you drink from that mug, you think of your mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> Does that? I mean, I mean, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> My argument was going to be that it's always better to drink coffee from a mug that you're nostalgic about. Okay. Was was my theory, and uh, I actually turned on my camera again just so you could see Dylan in person. Oh, but me. this is not just a a okay. regular brown mug, <gasps> no. but. It's <laughs> one of the OG Ben's Beans mugs wow. that I just had hiding in for our listeners. Um, <laughs> Ben's Beans was the the best uh, coffee roaster in northeastern Connecticut. And it's just, you know, it, it was a time in life that I'm nostalgic about. So I'm drinking nostalgic coffee from a nostalgic mug. That was our intro to the coffee world. For real. Yeah, it was like the best the best coffee around for sure. And now we have to go elsewhere to get our coffee, which is fine. But it was a time. It was a good time. It was a symbol of our friendship. And you know what they say? Like, they say that it's like the same with music. Like, your favorite music is always going to be whatever you listen to in like high school or college. I think. Um, so maybe it's the same with coffee. It's exactly the same. And I think our <laughs> coffee taste is probably very much the same as yeah. that time. Yeah, that's true. I will never drink another coffee that was as good as that Yerga Chef. I agree because of the nostalgia. I remember, you know what, you know what, it's definitely nostalgia because I was just going to say, and this just proves the point. I remember going to the book barn in Niantic on the coast of Connecticut and then driving back, stopping at Ben's with you (laughs) 
after we got a haul, I think we got like Joseph Conrad books. <laughs> I, I genuinely think that happened. And then we drank, and then they had Jurgen Chef, and it was just, it was great. That that was the real the OG origin of redeeming reads right there was truly uh, was the the book barn with Ben's beans so with Joseph Conrad. <laughs> this is just you know for anyone listening go you know go buy books with your friends and drink coffee. Like that's <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, turning back to Walden, um, <laughs> what would you say your favorite part of reading this book was? Um, okay, so for me, the most enjoyment came from listening to Thoreau's appreciation for the interconnectedness of nature and just basic observation like I, I had just previously mentioned. Um, and I think for me, there's just sort of this personal connection to me and my family life. So my dad is a like huge outdoorsman and um, I grew up going out in the woods with him. He loves to just go for walks. He owns like 20 acres of land just to own it. Um, he like grows pumpkins. He likes to fish in his own pond that he has and a stream. Like he is a quintessential outdoorsman um, identifying he plants. He is Thoreau. He is Henry. He, like, in a way, and it's funny, This so he has had a copy of Thoreau, and, of Walden, since I was a kid. And huh. I I think it was probably, like, in middle school. I think I tried to read it, but probably didn't understand because, like, the philosophical part. But I knew that I wanted to read it, you know? But I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't appreciate the, the depth yeah. of Thoreau at that point. I was just more like, oh, cool, this guy lives in the woods. Um, but it's <laughs> oh, really cool. more layers than that. But... I think because of that, there's really a, a personal connection there. And, you know, for me, it goes beyond that. So like where Thoreau's, and we'll talk about this in the in the gospel application part, but like the connection to, you know, a spirituality. And even if for Thoreau, it was just sort of a vague spirituality. Um, for me as a Christian, there was a lot of just overlap with wisdom literature in the Old Testament and um, just many biblical ideas that come to, to mind for me. And that was a pretty special connection. If you can make both of those at the same time, um, it really is a cross section, I think, of something that's that, you know, is significant to me in a lot of ways, just in my own my own life. Um, you know, like this coming weekend, I'm going on a, you know, a, a four day camping trip that is to a place that's super remote and has, you know, no cell service and is like back country camping. And it feels very much in the vein <laughs> of, of Thoreau in that way. Um, and I think just reading it brought about a lot of enjoyment in, huh. in those areas yeah, for me. Nice. Yeah. yeah How about you? Way. Yeah, really? <laughs> How about you? It's what, the nostalgia what was, that you were just talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so my favorite part, I, I don't know, really. Um, I, I liked the descriptions. I like just reading the descriptions of nature. It's close to like looking at nature. You know, you can picture kind of in your mind what he's talking about when he's referring to the pond and all the animals. And um, I remember one scene that, or not scene, but one description that sticks in my mind is how he was describing how he would start to like be more in tune with like almost like tracking like sometimes people would come to visit him when he like wasn't home or something and he'd see on his way back home he'd see that um the leaves were, were like pushed aside where the footprints were or like 
he could even tell like the like gender of the person depending on like you know like if they like were like ripping up a leaf and then dropping it on the ground unintentionally or you know if they left some like markings like around or if they like left anything on his door he could pretty much guess who it was who like visited him and yep. i don't know that was that's just cool um it was interesting to read about um i also appreciated his chapter on reading and the way that he view, he like really shares our perspective on classic literature and is kind of a purist in the sense of like in, in a way that like you know the old books that have stood the test of time are the ones that we should spend our time with um, maybe naturally more than newer books just because there's a higher probability they're going to you know provide wisdom to our life um, because they've stood that test of time uh, he goes a little overboard he says you should like learn to read latin and all the ancient languages in order to like read these books which makes no sense um, i disagree <laughs> there i think we have good translations um these days but um he even just his like the way he talks about like even learning and acquiring knowledge i just appreciate that um i always enjoy learning things and he takes kind of like a non-traditional way or, or route about what truly makes someone like a good thinker or someone truly like logical a good a good learner someone who's knowledgeable and yeah, I, yeah and again i, I think some of that definitely well i think Again, the countercultural part is relevant now, mm-hmm. just because it's so different from maybe our current cultural mindset, um, mm-hmm. just in terms of depth of thought and learning and all of that. Yeah. But related to that, maybe, I just think this is important because you had shared with me just briefly earlier something you didn't like about the book. So, Dylan, what was your least favorite part about, about Walden? We don't typically ask this, but I just I think it's important for people to hear. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the tone and the tone with which he writes and even some of the content that he writes and how he gets there betrays the virtues that he's trying to, you know, put on a pedestal for the reader. Like he talks all about like living a humble, solitary life, you know, um, but I feel like it's a false humility that's betrayed by this kind of pretentious spirit in the way that he talks about others. And it's just super judgmental, I think. And um, it's just hard for me to read um, at times. I actually was I was surprised I was as off-put by his personality um, as I was. There's a part where he literally says in the, in the first chapter, he's like something like to paraphrase, like, you know, people often say that we learn a lot from people who have gone before us, but you know, I would say that really the only people we should learn from are those who are actually like living and striving and doing things now. And he says, like, I've never even learned anything from an old person. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> bro, like, what are you talking about, man? Like, you, yeah. he throws the baby out with the bathwater. Like, I don't know if he's just trying to be like edgy or just look cool or smart, but like, he, it's like a false, a false humility that's really just veiling, I think, his pride. And, you know, Maybe that's a prideful thing for me to say. I don't know. But I, all I'm saying is that I, it was hard for me to read some of it because I just felt like his, the way that he was talking about things just wasn't actually humble, you know? It was almost like a humble brag throughout the whole thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, and I agree wholeheartedly. It is off-putting at times. Um, yeah. and, he even talks uh, in parts about, like, hypocrites. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know. It's just like, uh, I don't really know if I can, like, totally embrace what you're saying yourself you know yeah we're before we were recording we were talking about the inconsistency with with 
what he is trying to do seems humble and down to earth, but as you said, seems to be false humility because he comes across as a Harvard educated philosopher um, who is <laughs> right. full of himself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I guess it's just, uh, I think it's unique be- in the sense that it's this sort of a cross between a diary and, um, or a, uh, or just like a natural history record and also a philosophical treatise, I think is an interesting combination. Um, it it's sort nearly, of is, it's, I would say it's like, it's near epistolary. But it's not yeah. written to like a specific person as a letter. But the way that he writes, I found like it was very like stream of consciousness and hard to like he kind of just talks about whatever he wants to talk about. Yeah. And he makes a lot of allusions to classics as he writes. And sometimes that was hard to follow because I don't necessarily know all the people he's referring to, which probably makes me uncultured <laughs> in his mind. But he just, you know, randomly, you know, he'd be talking about books and he's like, no wonder Alexander carried the Iliad with him. Like, it's just all sorts of crazy illusions. So I think it's unique, but also I don't know that it's the best um, vehicle for either a phil- or a environmental history or a philosophy book. Um, it feels like it's trying to be both at once. But, um, you know, I think it accomplished the purpose that he had for it, uh, which was just to record what happened and then, you know, share, convince other people of his point. Yeah. So one thing, Dylan, that came up for me is we were reading this during the spring season, which was sort of appropriate and maybe intentional on our behalf. I'm not completely sure. But did you find yourself more meditative or like thoughtful or prayerful, however you want to think about it, as you observed nature and you were reading Walden? <laughs> well, that's like the mentality I wanted to embrace coming into this, but then <laughs> my life just got like like squeezed with like so much busyness. So yeah. th- no, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I wish is the answer. Um, yeah, life was actually just too busy for me to really be able to spend much time in nature at all. Um, so I, you know, I do with some of my reading when I'm at work on my break at lunch. Um, there's... <laughs> Uh, well, I work I work at, in a location where I can see the ocean from my office, which is just beautiful mm. and great. Um, and then, but I'm like, so I'm trapped inside all day, and I just want to go outside. So for my break, when it's nice out, I do try to eat outside. There's picnic tables across the street, um, and like a little kind of a grassy area with some trees, which is maybe the most nature that, <laughs> that I was, um, I guess, surrounded by as I read this book. But I'd read some of the chapters like while I was on my lunch break outside. Um, and yeah, I just felt like it was helpful. It was peaceful for me, like, especially during like a, a work day, just nice to break up the work day, um, at times when it gets, you know, stressful or busy, um, just to take a break and go sit out in nature a little bit. Um, even if that's just like sitting at a picnic table <laughs> next to a tree or whatever. Um, I found it to be kind of nice and a little bit like grounding in some sense, but it didn't really contribute to like my prayer life per se, or like my spiritual life actually. Um, yep. uh, per se. I mean, I think that it helped me, I think it, maybe it's helped my appreciation of, of creation and nature. Um, it yep. probably boosted my like theology of nature in some sense. Certainly I think that the, there are dangers of this, uh, of his ideology that I would warn other maybe believers from, uh, totally embracing. But I think if you're wise and discerning, like, you know, we should be able to 
embrace some of the stuff for what it is and it can contribute to our spiritual lives so i don't know if that answered the question or not but i think that it's really timely that we read it in this time of year you know when everything is blooming and there's a chapter yeah. on the season of spring too <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah definitely a good you know but there's also uh i was gonna say it's a good season to read it but there's also a chapter on winter this could yeah. also be a good book to read in the winter time. definitely i just found i think in this season i s- just start spending a lot more time outside in general you know winter is i'm very kind of just it's so dark early all of those things so i've been like walking outside a lot more typically i try to walk like every evening um and there's a few places close to you know where i live where i can go walk and there's like sort of a nice view of some like of new england countryside you know some farms in the distance and stuff and it's just like you know i can i can walk and i sort of think maybe Thoreau helped me get to some sort of place, not necessarily spiritual in like the Christian sense, but just in the sense of like, I'm, I'm calmed and grounded by just being out in the, you know, natural world. Um, even if I'm not having some deep philosophical thought, I could just appreciate it maybe in a different way because, because we were reading Walden at the same time. Uh, if that makes sense. And I just thought the season timing was was very appropriate. As I was appreciating all the blossoms and flowers and stuff, I could also be uh, outside, you know, walking around. Another thought I had was uh, with Thoreau's philosophy of self-reliance and solitude. And we talked about solitude a little bit already, but this idea of self-reliance that like, I don't need anybody else to help me (laughs) with my thing. And that that's, that like builds character, I think is his ultimate argument or that builds inner awakening. Um, Do you think that's true? Do you think his argument was overstated? Do you feel like that is something we've lost in culture today? I, I'm gonna. I'll probably. I can't help but dip probably into our gospel discussion <laughs> by answering this sure. question. But I, I understand the that like thought process and desire of naturally like being self reliant and producing for yourself. You know, and there's a part of that that's like true and good that like we should be responsible for ourselves and be able to like. There's a oh, there's a good um, quote that I'm forgetting that I'm gonna butcher. I forget even what he compares it to, but he talks about how like. I forget if it's like a mansion, like he's like, why do some people build mansions? Like it's hard enough to, you know, get your own like house of flesh and blood in order, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, okay, like fair point. Um, It's almost like, I don't know if you are familiar with Jordan Peterson, but his like, uh, his kind of mantra of like, make your bed. Like you think you're going to go make, you know, go, you know, jump into the world of politics and make a big splash. Like you didn't even make your bed this morning. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, say what you will, whether you like or dislike Jordan Peterson, I think that's a good at least thing to think about. But I feel like he has a, a type of, you know, <clears throat> like maybe a helpful self-reliant uh, spirit that he's trying to promote and believes in. I can understand the pull to that, but I also disagree. Um, and I think because I am a believer, I am convinced that we were made and intended to live in community with each other. Um, and I think that we're kidding ourselves if we think we can do it on our own. Yeah. Um, we were built for community. We're a social creature. Um, 
you know, solitude is helpful, certainly, but it also can be really sad and depressing and lonely. Like we also feel lonely for a reason. And I think that points to the fact that we're meant to have this balance of like being in community and with others. And there's also just the kind of practical reality that we need other people to help us, whether it be in like our careers or to make money or like we have to rely on other people. We're not just going to be able to go, you know, plant a bean field (laughs) by ourselves, you know, or whatever. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe it was. I don't know if it was overstated, because that was his conviction. Um, I'm just not fully convinced by that. I think because of my like um, spiritual inclination towards a you know God's kingdom, which is a, like God's church is is a universal people. It's a universal spiritual kingdom where God takes people from you know, every tribe, tongue, and nation and brings them together and to live life together for his glory rather than being isolated silos. Like even the picture of the church, like we need each other. The church is people. It's the congregation gathered, set apart. Um, so anyway, for that reason, I, I kind of shirk at some of the self-reliance um, stuff. Not to get too maybe religious for those listening who don't share my convictions, but I think it can be a good thing and I think it can be a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> like most No, things. I'm with you there. I think he just takes it too far as sort of my personal um, landing point with him. Like I can appreciate solitude for periods of time that are intentional and for a purpose, but to be like, I'm going to go live by myself for years um, And I know he had interaction with people during that time, but to live alone intentionally for multiple years feels like a a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Like I don't. And like, how does he, if, 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 if this world was the idealistic place for him, like would every person just live isolated lives from each other? Like everyone would live (laughs) like, yeah, I I don't know how would it's a great question. Yeah. I think he, the self-reliance part, I think he was just trying to, I think he has a good point maybe in that people get too comfortable in the way that we're living. And I think it is okay to push the boundaries sometimes and be like, I'm too comfortable the way I'm living. So I'm going to challenge myself in some way. Um, But I don't think that that necessarily looks like building your own cabin in the woods for years. Um, I think that worked for him uh, and his own worldview, but, I don't think that that's necessarily the way that everyone needs to practice self-reliance. Um, but definitely, you know, was, was the method he chose and, and seemed to pan out for him in the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I do think that there is something to be said about being able to just sit alone with your thoughts and be yeah, content definitely. with that. You know, I think there's a lot of people these days who no longer have that capacity or ability um, again, related to, I mean, of, of course, personality might be part of it. You know, some people who derive their energy from other people, um, they genuinely need to be around people to recharge. Um, you know, people, some people just feel lonely if they're alone. That's also super valid. Um, but at the same time, we're so conditioned by, I think, technology and yeah, that we all in social media, we always need to be connected and it makes no sense to the modern man to, to like, you know, go and delete his social media or like have a dumb phone for a little bit. Um, yeah. 
And even people that do that eventually come back most of the time to it, you know? Right. And of course, it's a good thing. It's a good gift that we need to utilize and we really have to if we're going to meaningfully engage in this world. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's maybe a good exercise to think about ways that we can balance our life more and um, restrict and limit our engagement in some of those areas. This feels like a good point to move on to our gospel discussion now. Um, And the first thing I want to ask you is is just overall, did you find Thoreau's philosophy to be more at odds with your understanding of Christian philosophy or more in agreement with it? Like what was the, the balance you found as you were reading? Were you surprised? Were you, what, what were you thinking? I was so I was surprised that I didn't disagree with him more. I thought that he was going that as a transcendentalist, he was going to be more like pantheistic, as far as like seeing God in everything and like these kind of you know beliefs that would be considered heretical to Orthodox believers um, of the historic Christian faith, um, and he didn't really go there. And I kept expecting him to like start like saying some weird stuff about like creation that never really happened, um, which is good, I suppose. He did talk very generally about like a distinct creator and like author of all things. Um, meanwhile, he would critique um, in helpful and appropriate ways, I think like Christian culture at the time, but he was also very familiar with people like he references Puritans. So he was kind of immersed in that culture that like, of you know, maybe the Christianity that I would be more in a line with. And he kind of separated himself from that in a way. Yeah. That was probably influenced by Unitarianism and, um, and maybe a heavier emphasis on nature than, than I would myself, but overall, like, I don't, I really don't think we have that. He wasn't as far off as I was going to expect him to be (laughs) doing these things. However, um, I will say I was disappointed. Well, not disappointed because I knew it wouldn't be there, but I would say one, one dividing factor is that there's just, it's not Christocentric. There's nothing about his belief in a deity that is grounded in anything that's distinctly Christian. You know, you could say the same things yep. about Judaism or like, you know, any other real, really like monotheistic religion. Yeah, definitely. I'm with you there. Feels like Basically, he... like the only thing I, I would be able to say is that he believes in a creator. That's about right. as distinct as it, as it gets. Yeah. And I think his, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, but just his, for me, like his environmental philosophy seemed to align more generally with uh, say the wisdom literature of the Bible, where you look at the natural world and learn from it. But as you said, sort of the cornerstone of that for us is missing, right? <laughs> um, and without that, it sort of collapses. But I could appreciate the philosophy, that part of it, from my own point of view, um, without having him, you know, believe exactly uh, as I do. So there's a sort of a, a a pro and con there, I think, for us yeah. as believers. I think the the discerning believer can embrace the good of what he says and use it to their advantage and redeem <laughs> that truth, you know, um, in a Christ-centered and Christ-exalting way, which is the whole point of this podcast. Exactly. And I think 
compared to at least my experience in books that we've been reading recently, in this, it, in some way, Walden was more relatable on that front, um, philosophically. You know, in, instead of reading something and uh, and and just finding it challenging to to find common ground with Christianity and like having to really dig for it. I don't feel like I had to dig that hard with Thoreau to find things that at least we were sort of on the same page about, even if ultimately we disagreed. Um, it's just something I can read and it enhances my life as a Christian in a way that's, you know, more obvious than some other novels we've read maybe. Yeah, I agree. Now, what are some ways maybe that you think Thoreau might understand more about nature or at least think about nature in a, in a better way than most Christians of our age? Yeah, definitely. We, you know, this is something that sort of a hot button topic uh, in the church at the moment, I think only because it's politically charged, right? Um, you tend to be on sort of one side of a, the political fence or another about the environment, um, and unfortunately, I think that has sort of made its way into the church a little bit. Um, and Thoreau, just by being in nature and observing it and um, experiencing it, came to some conclusions about the natural world, things that we might call natural revelation. Uh, we might not come to the same exact conclusion about those things, but he had a better understanding of the natural world than, you know, probably... 90% of Christians now, if not more than that. And with it, I think he did sort of have a, a better understanding of how the world worked and maybe a better understanding of God in that way, in the sense that he understood the the interconnections um, of, of that world. And Christians just don't do a good job, at least Christians in our circles say, um, sort of broadly evangelicalism and then like the reformed camp of that. Uh, we just don't always do a good job of engaging on that topic. Um, I think we've largely forfeited having a voice in that world. Um, and maybe even, you know, to many people been on the side of like, like we don't care if the environment's destroyed entirely, you know? Um, so I think Thoreau, by reading this, it can give, as Christians, it can give us just another, um, point of view, a stepping stone maybe to have a better conversation about uh, that topic in the church. Yeah. And what do you think about mind, that? Yeah. I mean, my mind goes to the Psalm 19, which is a Psalm that is primarily about the word of God and the, you know, like supremacy of God's word to work powerfully. Um, but it starts off with uh, speaking about what theologians sometimes, yeah, like you said, call natural revelation or general revelation, which is just that like, and in concert with this idea also found in Romans one, that the creation itself ever since creation, like nature, everything that we can see, um, has shown us distinctly that God does exist and therefore we're held accountable to believe in him. So it's sufficient to reveal God to us yet it's insufficient to save us. It doesn't provide a saving knowledge of God, only enough to condemn, unfortunately, which is why evangelism is important. It's why the word of God is important. It's kind of what the psalm, where the psalm goes, is how God's word is um, like able to, you know, give 
give light to or to spiritual eyes um and that's that's a psalm that typically is and rightly interpreted as just like heralding or, or emphasizing the importance of heralding god's word well and god's word being powerful in the life of the christian the believer which is true um but it's still it starts with general revelation and i think often that just gets like a in maybe more theologically minded circles of the church it's like it becomes the creation becomes a a vessel just to then serve this greater revelation that's found in god's word alone which like as it should but to the extent of like maybe diminishing the power of creation itself or the beauty of creation and god's you know like just the the creation that bears witness to him you know um even yeah. in romans 8 it talks about how well well beyond psalm 19 actually which i'll just mention in quote that it says that um like the uh what is it the say that the skies above or the yeah, heavens, the declare, heavens the declare the glories of glory god. god yeah what the skies to de- declare his handiwork yeah exactly <laughs> um and romans 8 then and in turn also talks about how all of creation together is groaning and waiting for the redemption of the sons of god to to like usher in um god's redemption for all of creation and in some sense like that creation is also suffering under the fall and the curse as we see like thorns come into the picture um when when toil afflicts man um nature is also in some sense affected by the fall and groaning with us for the redemption of the you know revealing of the sons of god when christ returns um but that's so that's just a really important thing to realize that yes like creation still matters and um, it we can learn about the nature and character of God through even I think the natural designs of His world that He's created for us. I think it attests to the fact that like we have a Creator at all, and that's the way in which it should cause us to reflect and, and that we're accountable to God. Is that by anything creating at all, or by anything being created, it points towards a Creator, and that's the main emphasis that um, the biblical authors, authors especially Paul, are trying to point us towards yeah definitely i think that point about romans 8 and the redemption of humankind also being tied to the redemption of the physical world around us is super important um i think that's sort of the heart of the biblical understanding of like of the world and nature in it i mean from genesis it we are in a garden setting right our understanding of the world is in is surrounded by language of the natural world and the brokenness there is part of the story of human brokenness and of sin. And through God's story of redemption as laid out in scripture, we see at the end that that's brought full circle. And it's not just that humans are redeemed. And I think we have this idea of like heaven is somewhere else. Um, <laughs> like we're redeemed and we get to like leave this like broken place, but it's, it's not that it's that God is also restoring and renewing what was broken originally. Um, so this natural world working perfectly and seamlessly, unlike the way we see it now. But I think that that, because those two things are, are in some sense tied together, I think it's really a mistake for us to, to neglect one over another, um, I don't think you can have one without the other. And uh, the fact that our special revelation in scripture 
it points to natural revelation, I think it's just something that's important for us. Um, you know, theoretically, the the deeper we strive to understand something like the Bible, because we think that that's communicating God's word, there, sh- I think, should be at least some sort of understanding that, like, the, as we increase our knowledge of the natural worlds, if that's, um, you know, being driven theologically in, in the right way, that that can also increase our appreciation and worship of God through our understanding of it. And I think that's really where some of this breaks down where Thoreau was doing that without really being, um, you know, committed to the gospel in the same way that we think is so important, but he could appreciate (laughs) the natural world. Um, And I just think, you know, how much more should we also uh, at least have some sort of appreciation of the natural world, maybe in a way that we, we haven't thought about it before. Yeah. I think that the church does underemphasize the importance of caring for God's creation. You know, I think we do as individuals, if we you know know the good that we can do and we don't do it, it's, that's wrong. Like if we have the option, let's say that there's a trash can and a recycling bin, I think that it would be right for us to recycle, <laughs> you know, if we have the opportunity to do so. However, I do think that and this is just my personal, um, like reckoning with this subject and it's by no means a prescription, but I don't think per se, however, that the church's main mission is to, um, you know, help rescue creation, you know? And I think that's where some people take fault with the whole issue over, <laughs> over the environment is that, you know, there's also the danger of like making that one of the primary missions of the church when that might actually just detract from the church's true mission, which is to make disciples and baptize those of every nation, you know? Um, and it can lose that gospel focus that I think needs to be primary in the church. Um, and so I think, I, I guess I'd say almost like the church itself really, like we're not going to be able to save creation from the fall. Only God can do that. Um, and he will, he promises that he will. Um, so I think the church, if we were to say that was one of our primary things, you know, that we're fighting for is the environment. I think that might go a step too far as the universal church or or a gathered congregation. However, I do think that as individuals, like, yeah, we ought to take care of the creation, (laughs) you know, kind of in that tension of the individual responsibility, like, yeah, is maybe there. Um, if we have the capacity and ability to, to, you know, protect the environment in some way, we should go for that. Um, but I, I do think that it could sidetrack the church's main mission, which is to reach those who are spiritually lost um, if we let that take over. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you. It is not one of the main things for sure. Yeah. I think the... I think the error would be, again, just that we have to choose one or the other, I think is a false dichotomy, right? That it's either we are like all in and like, this is like on our church website and like, this is what we're about. Like, no, obviously not. That's not, that's not a primary thing. We have, you know, to, to preach the gospel <laughs> um, and, and to reach the lost uh, and to love God and others in the church, right? There, there's like core things, but I think the the equal and opposite error is to say nothing at all about it ever, right? And then I think to the world, that means that we 
don't care about it at all. Um, I think there's actually maybe room in the world we're in at the moment to just to to show them that like there is some common ground here that we have theological reason to believe that they're that we need to care for the creation, you know. Um, and that we might have better reason than they do for caring for it um, because we have a theological and biblical foundation for that. Um, there's a there's a good book on this called um, Stewards of Eden by this uh, author named Sandra Richter. Um, okay. She, I have not read it. I own it. I feel like Michael um, from The Office. <laughs> <laughs> read it. I own it. But have I read it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's a really good, um, you know, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with every point in it, but she, you know, more recently is part of an evangelical movement, at least to identify that there are biblical passages. She does some exegesis of biblical passages um, just on the need for, you know, for Christians to have an awareness of this. Um, I think, you know, Dylan, for people in our generation, there's already an awareness of this because socially it's such a big deal. But I think I've just found that generationally, there's people that really struggle um, with with this idea of creation care. And I think it's just good to see someone lay it out biblically. So, I mean, I would recommend people reading that just so there, there's some awareness, um, even if you don't buy in 100%, that there's, there's, you know, biblical examples and things you probably haven't even thought of um, that are, you know, good reason for us to to think carefully about how we interact with the created world uh, that God has given us to be stewards of. Um, and that, that just might be a helpful resource. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you for joining this episode of Redeeming Reads as we talked about Walden, talking about creation, the new creation, paradise to come. And the next book is Paradise Lost. Milton. This one's exciting. I've never read this book. This is incredible. It's, I mean, also it's incredible because it's really a poem. It's an epic poem, but it's also massive. Um, So I'm sure we'll have plenty to discuss. Great. Well, join us next time as we talk about Paradise Lost by John Milton.